Well, as you take your seats, turn to Second uh, Samuel chapter 24. Uh, we're, we're in this series talking about God's glory, and we're asking him, show me your glory, along with Moses there in Exodus 34, 33 and 34. And uh, we're, we're in the very last chapter, very last episode of David's life this morning. So turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 24 and verse 10, and we will read that together. A little bit of context, David in the first few verses there of chapter 24 has taken a census of the people, and then in verse 10 we read this. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in the land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna look up, looked up, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, 
and the plague was averted from Israel. Sometimes we find stories in the Bible that make us a little uncomfortable, don't we? And this is one of those. But we're going to look at it this morning. But I was thinking about something different. I was thinking about the very first time that I held my newborn son in my arms. Do you remember that, parents? Isn't that an amazing moment? It it changed everything. It seemed like after five or ten minutes, I could not even remember what it had been like to not be a parent. And um, everything about that child was special to me. As he looked up into my eyes and there was trust and their love and that little precious gift from God did not take long to steal my heart. And so it was just minutes that I was, I, I was, I was enraptured. And I couldn't wait to feed him and hold him and even change his diapers. I mean, everything was exciting, right? <laughs> but then it became very apparent that he would want me to do those things several times a day. And that enraptured feeling went away pretty quickly. I remember there was one time we were staying with my mother-in-law and every room in the house was filled. And so we were our little family in one bedroom together. And one of those little cherubs, I won't tell you who it was, would not cease to cry. And it seemed like the whole house reverberated with his cries and so I, I was upset with him that he was disturbing my sleep. And then I was upset with my wife that she was not taking care of him and disturbing my sleep. And then I was upset with everyone else in the household because they were bothered that he was crying and that upset my sleep. And so I took him out in the garage and I just waited there until who knows when. But it was, it was a time. It was amazing how quickly it went from loving him with unconditional, unconditional, intense love into frustration and even anger. And so it seems odd to us from a rational standpoint that someone could provoke such, a, such an array of feelings, that intense affection, that extreme aggravation. And yet, I don't think if you've been a parent that you are unfamiliar with what I'm talking about. Um, If we're doing things properly, um, we might even get upset with the right things. We've put out a Uh, a moral code for our children. We try and instill values in them. We're trying to teach them right from wrong. And inevitably, because they've got sin nature, they violate those things. And when they do, we get upset with them. Now, because we're also human, our, our anger can go from a really appropriate reaction to a violation of a good standard to mild irritation to blind rage in a matter of no time. And so when we hear a story like this from Scripture, where God gets angry with the people, we think to ourselves, ugh, that's uncomfortable. Because we're thinking of the, the, the shame and the embarrassment that we've felt from our own failure in this same area. 
But that's not the way the Bible talks about this. It's not the way the Bible presents, especially in this passage, this burning, intense anger that God brings and delivers to his people. The Bible doesn't seem to be embarrassed about it at all. And I think the lesson is this, that God, and we're going to look at this over the course of the next few minutes, when God's holiness is violated, he gets angry. But then on the heels of that, he also provides a way for his people to be restored to relationship with him, restored to worship of him, restored to share themselves in his holiness. 2 Samuel 24 is kind of this interesting little postscript to David's life. Chapter 23 is already recorded, if you go back, the last words of David, but it seems like the author wants the reader of his little uh, book to walk away with this final impression. And so he recounts this story from David's life earlier where the king takes a census of the people. He starts to count them up. How many people are really the, the ideas? How many fighting men do I have? And something along the way goes sideways. We're not exactly sure what it is. Scholars debate. They have different explanations about what the problem is. But suffice it to say, the, what we can walk away with from Scripture is that God is not very happy with them. In fact, he's angry with them. David has sinned. And God is going to deal with his sin, now listen to this, by punishing the entire nation of Israel. Does that, does that seem odd to you at all? Does it seem fair? Well, we wonder, why should innocent Israel have to suffer for David's sin? But I just want to draw your attention to something. Go back, before we read, go back up to verse number one and look at how the whole account starts out. It speaks about the Lord's anger more broadly and it says this, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, context of this story, there's a lot of stuff there. I would encourage you to go back and, and, and work your way through it. Uh, go all the way back up to chapter 21 where this story really starts. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to do that this morning, but when we come to this story, sometimes what we, what we would do is we, we would start to think to ourselves, who really is the bad guy in this story? And, and, and just let me acknowledge that sometimes our thinking about good and bad, our thinking about uh, right and wrong is a little simplistic. One guy wears the white hat and the other guy wears the black hat and, uh, and never the two shall meet. But, but, but the Bible is written from the perspective that every single person is a sinner, that everyone is broken by sin and that only God is good. He alone is holy. And we're going to use that word a bit this morning, even though our passage doesn't actually use the word holiness. It doesn't point to God's holiness specifically by definition. And yet I think the whole thing points to God's holiness because it, it is a violation of God's standard. Now, not holiness in, the, in terms of right and wrong, good and evil, moral and immoral, but holiness in terms of being absolutely set apart and unique to God. 
God is absolutely unique. He is absolutely set apart, and he has called his people to the same thing. And here in this passage, because of the way that David operates, because of the way the Israelites, Israelites operate, they have brought an offense to God's holiness. They have proven themselves not to be separate unto him. Why, why does God punish innocent Israel for David's sin? Well, that, that's the wrong question. Israel is not innocent, and neither is David, obviously, by the way, in this passage. And, and it's a little complicated, as I said. You're going to have to go back up to chapter 21 and follow the train of thought in this unit of, uh, of literary design, but it's enough to say that Israel had sinned and God was angry with them. David had sinned, and, 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 and he had taken for granted God's provision for the people. And so God is dealing with that as well. And, and, and in order to protect his holiness, God is dealing with David in a way that will project his reputation and his, protect, his restoration of the people. Isn't that the case, parents, that, that when we... When, when our children violate our standards, we put those things in place so that they can flourish, so that they can be safe. And there are times, if we are doing it right, that we, don't, we are not looking for an excuse to punish them, but we have to punish them in order that they will learn what are the boundaries of their protection, the boundaries of their blessing. It's, it's for their own good. It's for their own success. It's for their future. And that anger, that frustration, if it is righteous at the little people that God has given you, is for, for them because they have, not because they violated your standards or your preferences, but because they have violated God's standards. And ultimately, what you desire for them is for them to respond with repentance that puts them back on God's good pathway for life. And that's exactly what we find here from David. He is repentant even before he's confronted with his sin. And that's where our passage starts this morning, verse 10. Look at it. It says this, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. He didn't even have to be confronted with his sin, his heart testified to the fact that he had walked outside of God's direction for his life. His heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And look at what he says, verse 10. David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I want you to look as a... As a a side lesson this morning at the way David deals with his sin. Very instructive for us. He took personal responsibility. He didn't blame anyone else. It wasn't like, oh, well, the, you know, those dumb Israelites that you gave me. In fact, if you look at verse 17, he says that more explicitly. Don't punish them, punish me. David looks to God for forgiveness and restoration, and he recognizes that the source of his bad decision-making was his own foolishness 
and his own sin, not the wisdom of God. And he is now leading the way for the rest of the story to restored relationship with, with God for himself and for the nation. And the question is, what will God's answer be? God had been angry. That's how the story started with David. He had been angry with Israel. Will his anger subside? Now, if it were you and if it were me, uh, we might say something like, oh, we're going to let it slip just this once. If you promise that you'll never do it again, eh, we'll ease up on the punishment or we'll look the other way. Um, by contrast, God is not angry that he is being inconvenienced. He, he is not angry that, that this thing has bothered him. No amount of groveling is going to be able to satisfy it. Instead, God in his holiness is burning with this white, hot anger because the standards he has put out for his people have been violated. His character has been attacked. And it is wonderful at the start of the story that David has recognized his own responsibility in that. But God's justice demands a response. If we think back to what we've talked about in the previous weeks, God is on the mountain with Moses, and his glory, remember, is dangerous. Don't come near the mountain, or else you may die. God's glory is dangerous in the best of circumstances. But when people are sinful and they violate God's standards, God's glory is lethal. So sometimes, let's look at first this morning, this holiness that hurts. Look at verse 12. God offers a choice to David. Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So three years of famine, three months to flee from your foes while they pursue you, or three days of pestilence in the land. Not a great multiple choice question right here. Just take a moment and think to yourself, which one of those would you choose? Better yet, how would you decide which one of those to choose? You may say to yourself, I'm going to choose that three uh, month thing. I'm clever enough to hide and escape. I'm like, you know, Mission Impossible, Jason Bourne. I can get away from these enemies. I'll find spots to get away from it. Or you may say to yourself, uh, I'm going to choose the famine. I'm a good gardener. I'll, I'll, I'll ration my food. I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I will be able to mitigate the punishment because, because I'm clever enough on my own. Notice David did not depend on his own strength. He did not depend on his own wisdom to circumvent the punishment. Or you might think to yourself, I'm going to choose the three days. I can do anything for 72 hours. Not that big of a deal. Now, David did choose the three days, but he, he wasn't looking to minimize the punishment that God was bringing into his life, these consequences of his sin. Note why David chose the three days. He chose the three-day punishment, this pestilence, this plague, because a punishment from the Lord was much more acceptable, much more gracious than a punishment 
from another source, from, from the outside. Look at verse 14. He gives his reasoning. I am in great distress, as you would be. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Now look at me. God is about to unleash an unspeakable devastation on the people. And David is declaring his mercy is great. His mercy is great. Still in verse 14, let me not fall into the hand of men. David is putting himself under God's hand knowing that he will do what is good and right. Even in punishment, God has the best interests of his people in mind. And as we read this story, I'm going to be honest with you, the next verses are a little hard for us to digest. Look at verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. And the Bible tells us that 70,000 people died. We have no context for that number. Let me give a little bit of context. If we run the numbers, that was about 4.5% of Israel's population at the moment. That would be like 14.8 million Americans dying. 13 to 14 times as deadly as COVID was in three days. Three days. And make no mistake, the Bible doesn't shy away from this. Who sent the punishment? Look at verse 15. The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. God sends this to the people. And there, there have been a lot of people, and maybe you are one of them, as you read stories like in this in Scripture, who would look at this and they would say, how can a loving God do that? Why didn't he just forgive the people? Why, why didn't he look the other way? But notice, David, in the midst of this, this is not his response. David knew he was guilty. He certainly probably felt that guilt as a member of the nation of Israel. He knew what God's holy standard was, and he was grateful to fall under God's hand, even though it was extremely severe. He said that your hand is merciful. God's rules were for his people's protection, for, the, for David's life and for the life of his people. Now, a little bit of background here for us to understand David's confidence in the goodness of God's punishment. Just rewind for a second. In taking this census at the beginning of the chapter, David had done something, even though that particular action was permitted in the law, he had done it in a way that violated God's law. And again, that's the part we're not really sure exactly what happened. But clearly, even though he was justified in taking the census, he had done something in that, that counting of the military men that was unacceptable and violated God's law. But right here, as he contemplates an appropriate punishment, it is very apparent that he does consult the law. In fact, if you were to go back, just write this in your notes if you're taking notes, to Exodus chapter 30 and verse 12, there is a law that talks about taking censuses in the nation of Israel. And it talks about 
a punishment for taking censuses in an illicit way, in a wrong way. And guess what the punishment was? It was pestilence. That's what the punishment was in the law. And so while David had stepped out of line in regards to God's word previously, he either had been ignorant of it or he hadn't paid attention to it, he certainly hadn't consulted it, God is giving him a chance to come back into alignment under his law, under his protection. And he does so. Initially, David had left God out of the equation. But now he recognizes his error and he's seeking God's restoration. And in his distress, David trusts in the dangerous holiness of God to restore himself and to restore the people. Let me say it this way. Being in the crosshairs of God's righteous anger is far better than seeking safety through your own wisdom. It may not be pleasant, but it is what's best. Let me say it again. Being in the crosshairs of God's righteous anger is far better than seeking safety through your own wisdom. Do you believe that? I think too often we are looking to do everything we can to avoid punishment, to escape punishment. And as New Testament Christians, certainly we are familiar with Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that says, all have fallen, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And this summer we're asking God to show us your glory. But when God's holiness is violated, we will experience, experience God's glory in the form of this righteous punishment. That, that is sort of an immutable law of the universe. Wherever you go, if you break the rules, it brings consequences. We had a letter from the IRS this week at our house. Aren't those fun? <laughs> if you don't pay your taxes, if you cheat on your taxes, there will be penalties up to and including imprisonment. If you gossip about a friend, you may lose a friendship. Children, if you disobey your parents, they will bring God's uh, correction into your life. All of us are familiar with those flashing blue lights in the rearview mirror, and we get that sickening pit, uh, sickening feeling in the pit of our stomach, and we think to ourselves immediately, is he after me? And once we determine that he is after me and I'm pulling over to the side of the road, did I push the envelope just a little too far? Am I going to be found guilty? And we're hoping maybe, possibly, that we'll just be let off with a warning. But sometimes you just know, right? All of you are much more righteous drivers than I. Sometimes you just know, I am guilty. There is nothing I can say. I cannot bargain my way out of this one. There is no excuse that I can give. I was going too fast. You've got me. I've got no excuse. Whatever the cost of the ticket is, just write it and I'm going to pay it. God's holy standards are unchangeable. When we violate them, we violate 
him and we can't escape without punishment being administered. Uh, Even the sins that we think are uh, secret and hidden are under God's holy judgment. Jealousy and lust and pride, God's holy standards still come to bear in our lives. And it, it may be painful for us, but ultimately if we listen and we learn, it is going to be for our best. Pain is not a bad thing. And it's not weakness leaving the body no matter what a thousand internet memes will say. Pain is not a bad thing as long as it helps us understand a better way forward. And that way for us as believers is God's way. This story is difficult to read. But I believe it's in the Bible for a purpose. And I think if we continue on in the next little few verses, we are going to see that purpose. So while there is a holiness that hurts, In these next verses, let's look at this holiness that heals. So this plague threatens to wipe out all of Israel. And now, if you notice in the passage, two angels make an appearance. The first in verse 16, it says, this angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it. This angel is God's messenger of judgment. He's ready to carry out God's sentence on the people. But, but look at this. This is a really interesting little statement. He is only free to do so, according to verse 15, until the appointed time. Isn't that an incredible thought? If we, we started off comparing our anger as parents to God's anger, uh, it, it, thinking back to our own frustration, punishment of our children, too often we punish them And the conclusion of the punishment is just when our emotion sort of subsides enough that we're no longer angry with them. We give them the silent treatment until we no longer feel irritated with them. We ground them until the emotion is sort of gone away. With God, though, the time of punishment is specifically appointed. It is not arbitrary like it can be with us as human beings. And so then there in verse 16, uh, the angel is about to lift his hand out over Jerusalem and it says, the Lord relented from the calamity and he said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. But the interesting thing is the punishment has reached a ceasefire But the matter is not yet decided. David has responded, but remember, the Lord is angry with not only David, but also the people of Israel. Have they responded? God's anger was kindled against both of them, and it's almost if if God pauses at this moment and he asks, have you had enough? Are you ready for peace? And this is where we see that second angel there in verse 16. It says this, And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David had already demonstrated his humble repentance. And now he stands before God on behalf of the people. And he says this, verse 17, He spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel was striking the people over in Jerusalem, and he said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. But, but remember, the people are not innocent e- either. 
And there has to be a solution for their guilt as well. God's anger must be appeased. And in that moment, in that day, in that economy, it was appeased through sacrifice. So in verse 18, the prophet Gad says to David, go up, raise up an altar to the Lord. And David does that right where he's standing, right where God meets with him. In fact, he offers to purchase the land from the owner. And the owner sees the king, sees his cohorts coming to him, visiting his humble home, and he wants to just give it to him. And right here, I think David makes this incredible statement about worship. Look at verse 23. I will not offer burnt offerings. In fact, in the parallel passage, it says, I will not offer anything to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. David knew my sin is costly. The people's sin is costly. My worship must be equally weighty. That was the fact that their sin was costly. That's the law of the uh, that's the lesson of the law in the sacrificial system. It's not about making amends or hoping that you could do enough for the good to outweigh the bad. It was about satisfying God's wrath meeting the demands of his justice in the way that he had outlined in the law. It was about recognizing his holy character. It was about acknowledgement that, that my sinful actions, the, the sinful actions of the people, defied the image of God that was in me. And it was about bridging that gap between men who were ordinary and a God who was holy. So, so after this sacrifice to bridge the gap between God and men, here's how the book of Second Samuel concludes. This is the end of the entire book. This is the last thing that he's going to write. Look at it. Verse 25. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Whew. Good news. Take a deep breath and a deep sigh. But imagine if you're hearing this story for the very first time, you might be tempted to ask the question, is this how it's going to be every time a person sins? Or every time a person violates the law in a significant way? It certainly seems like a high price to pay. It won't take too many of those before the nation is reduced to nobody. But if we look further as the story unfolds, even into the book of First Kings and beyond... We know, because we sit on this side of history, that that little plot of land that David purchased for 50 shekels of silver, that little plot of land where he sacrificed to the Lord, that became the location where his son Solomon would build a temple. That was the place where the priests would bring the blood of the sacrifices to be offered to God as an atonement for sin. That would be a place where people could ritually purify themselves so that they could approach God in his holiness. Now look, we don't observe the same rituals in our day. There are no, in case you were wondering, there are no sacrifices planned for later in the worship service. It's not the way we do things. And yet we worship that same holy God. He dwells in glory and holiness 
that is no less significant, no less dangerous, no less awesome than these stories we read in Scripture. And we heard it earlier that all have sinned and fall short of glory, of God's glory. All are deserving of death, Paul goes on to say to the Romans, but then he says that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I live in a, in a new day. We live under a new covenant so that the author of the Hebrews reminds us this, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's the era that David was living in. Consequently, he says, Christ came into the world and according to the old covenant, every priest would stand daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That seems like it is not sustainable. But, verse 12, the author of the Hebrews goes on to say, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so we live in a time when, because of his holy life, Jesus was able to offer himself as the permanent sacrifice to God, once for all, nothing else needed. No other person in history could have done the same because no other person perfectly fulfilled the holiness of God's laws, God's holy laws. And Jesus did this on our behalf so that we have the opportunity to have relationship with God through him. And for us to approach him in his holiness doesn't bring into our lives this devastating judgment. We can experience his glory because of Jesus. And we started the summer asking this question along with Moses, show us your glory, God. And do you remember what God's response was to Moses? He meets him on the mountain and there is awesome displays of his glory. But then he speaks words to Moses, words of introduction. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. We love that part. That's, that's good stuff. God shows us his steadfast love to his people. He's merciful and gracious, but that's only part of the introduction. He goes on to say that he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's a little bit more difficult to hear and understand and accept because when we think of those things, we think of ourselves and the anger that we have. Inappropriate, out of control, overextended, but not God. A God who is merciful and gracious and loving and faithful, but will not avenge his holiness, is a God of your own making. It is a God that you have created in violation of the commandments that we talked about last week. Well, I, I just believe in a loving God. 
I, I don't believe in all that angry God stuff. I don't, I don't believe a loving God would send people to hell. I don't believe a loving God would do this, would do that. Well, then you have created a God in your own image. You are worshiping an idol because God is holy and when his holiness is violated, he will take action. But in his holiness, he invites us to share that holiness with him and he has made a way for us to share that holiness with him. At times we will fall under the corrective punishment of God, but even that is a grace to us because it proves that you and I are his sons and daughters. It, it, it is not pleasant, but it is, in, it is necessary. And the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say this. He says that when God punishes us, it allows us to share in his holiness, a holiness that I cannot achieve on my own, attain on my own, but when God punishes us, we share in his holiness and it yields in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Because of Jesus, I do not have to depend on myself. You do not have to depend on yourself to live rightly before God. He will bring training into your life. He will bring discipline into your life. But because of Jesus' ultimate punishment, we can have confidence that you and I are the sons and daughters of God if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you need to repent this morning. You need to recognize that you have violated God's standards and you need to trust Jesus to come to faith in him. Some of you have done that, but you are living in a way that is a consistent violation of God's holy standards, you need to repent and you need to allow God to cleanse you of your sin. And he promises to do so. I would encourage that this morning because praise God, he is holy, but his holiness is merciful. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we are, we are moved with awe that we even have the privilege of stepping into the throne room of grace with confidence that allows us to speak to you in prayer. What a great privilege. But God, we also recognize that you are holy and you are awesome and you are righteous. And God, you have no place for the sin of humanity to dwell in your presence but thanks be to Jesus Christ. God, thanks be to, to God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, that we could be restored into relationship with you. Father, I pray that that would be the confidence of everyone here this morning, whether they are standing far away from you, having proclaimed their faith in you, and now they can remember that it is that your Holy Spirit is calling them to draw near God or whether there are those who would stand outside of your grace and goodness never having committed themselves to you and today would be the day of salvation. God, we ask that you would show us your glory each and every week. God, that you would do so not just through a feeling or a a. Uh, an outward demonstration of power, but God, we are grateful that you have done so by introducing yourself to us through Scripture, that you have done so by sending your Son, Jesus.
And Father, we pray, I pray that our worship in response to that will be powerful, will be uh, awe-inspiring, will be energetic, and will raise up to you the praise and honor due your name. Make that the case even now as we, as we respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.